it's uh, well worth sitting towards the front of the church when the congregation's singing like that. It's an exalting, uplifting experience. And that song is a great uh, introduction to uh, the passage that we're looking at. In fact, it's a great introduction to the book of Hebrews because this book of Hebrews is all about Jesus is greater, the author who probably preached what we have here as a sermon and then has been developed into this book, uh, would like to make the case that Jesus is greater. And if we back up in the text, we'll see early in the book, uh, the case was made that Jesus is greater than the angels, even though the angels are powerful, uh, beautiful beings. Jesus is greater. Uh, we saw in uh, early chapters that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses who led the people out of Egypt and brought about a mighty salvation that anticipated uh, uh, something greater that Jesus was going to do. Last week I spoke on what was really quite a difficult passage, um, Hebrews chapter 4, the Sabbath rest for God's people, that Jesus is greater than Joshua. Joshua was leading the people into the promised land, the land where God promised that he would give his people rest. There were a number of people that did not get into that land because they were disobedient. They failed to enter his rest. But, and this is the great promise of the scripture, that rest, good that it was, was a rest that foreshadowed a greater rest, the Sabbath rest that God has prepared for his people, for those who trust in Christ for obedience, uh, with their obedience. And so we are encouraged to make every effort to enter into that rest. And therefore, we come today to this passage where uh, the author wants to make the case that Jesus is greater than Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest that served the people of Israel. And so uh, Jesus is the one who fulfills the promise of James chapter 4 verse 8 that we spoke about a little bit earlier that we might draw near to God and he will draw near to us because Jesus invites us into a personal relationship with him. As we come to this passage, it is a little bit easier to unpack than the passage I had last week and I'm deeply grateful for that. Uh, but it's also just worth, for those of you who may not be so familiar with this passage, to back up a little bit and understand something about the priesthood in ancient Israel. Because our author is writing to Jewish people who would have had a very deep and uh, intimate understanding of how the priesthood functioned, or at the least how it was supposed to function. Because I ought to just make the point at this point, uh, the priesthood was always fallible and fallen. The priesthood uh, ideally was set up by God as the one who would mediate between people and himself, a kind of a go-between if you like, uh, but they were never perfect. And in fact, uh, if you come into the time of Jesus, we know from the scripture and not only from the scripture, but from outside the scripture, this is well attested to outside the Bible, Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of Jesus, was deeply political and very corrupt. And so the priesthood is an ideal, but uh, was not necessarily lived out in an ideal way. You'll see too, as we are reading through there, the author actually in a little parenthesis, a sort of little deviation there in chapter five, verses one to four, describes a couple of things about the priest. The priest was selected from amongst the people and so uh, came from the line of Levi, selected from amongst the people, appointed to represent all of the people in the matters of God. He was to be an ambassador. Uh, 
he was delegated by God to offer sins on his own sorry offer sacrifices for sins on his own behalf but also the nation um, those who are acquainted with the priesthood will know that the role uh, the function of the priest was significant it was time consuming and those sacrifices had to be made over and over and over and over again because once was not enough Ideally, and the author tells us this too, the priest would be able to empathise with the people and deal with them in a gentle manner because he, and it was always a male in the ancient times, uh, he would have experienced the same kind of struggles that they experienced. And the author also notes in this passage that the priest, the high priest, was called by God. It was not an anointing he could take and place on his own head. So why does the author appropriate this idea of priesthood when speaking about Jesus? Well, again, as I said last week, what we see running through the scripture is this idea that many of the things that are in the Old Testament are foreshadowing things that are going to come to fruition or reality in the New Testament. And typically, things in the Old Testament that ring their fulfillment in Jesus. And so they function a little bit like signposts in a way, these things that are taking place, these institutions, these functions in the Old Testament are pointing to something greater. It's a little bit like this. If you were to travel down the highway, uh, where would you like to go? <clears throat> Shall we take a trip together to the uh, tourist centre of Barnawatha? It's not a bad place. Barnawatha's all right. As you're travelling down the highway, you'll actually see a sign to Barnawatha, right? And when you get to the sign, do you stop your car and say, guess what, everyone? Here's a sign, we've arrived at Barnawatha. Not at all, because the sign's actually pointing to a greater reality. Now, please don't let me overextend this analogy, because I don't want anyone who lives in or around Barnawatha to feel like I'm poking fun at Barnawatha, because I'm not. Um, the point of the illustration is this. These things in the Old Testament, whether it be the priesthood or the sacrificial system or whatever it might be, actually point to a greater reality that is found in Jesus. And our author wants to make the case that Jesus is the great high priest that God has appointed uh, between, uh, be able to mediate between us and God. If you have a look at verse 14 with me in chapter 4, Jesus is called a great high priest. That, that immediately in a Jewish mind would say, this person has enormous power and is highly significant. Much authority in that role. Those who lived in the time of Jesus knew that the high priest had enormous power. So much so, as I said, um, Caiaphas abused his to the point um, down the track, actually after the death of Jesus sometime later, Caiaphas was actually sacked by the Romans, believe it or not. Uh, such was his corruption. The Jews also knew that it was the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. There's some interesting, uh, interesting little tradition that goes alongside this. The high priest wore some very peculiar uh, garments. They were prescribed by God in the scriptures. You can see this back in Leviticus. But uh, there were occasions, and this is not in the scripture, so we don't know for sure whether it's true, but there is a Jewish tradition that says uh, the other priest would tie a rope to his leg 
and they would put bells on his clothes so that when he went into the Holy of Holies, if anything happened in there, they could pull him out. It's rather interesting, isn't it? If this fellow that was the high priest went in and God did not accept his sin, uh, uh, the sacrifice for sin, uh, and he died in the Holy of Holies, no one else was allowed to go in there and so at least they could haul him out um, by his foot. And the bells, well, they could hear when he was moving, doing the stuff. If the bells stopped, they knew they had a problem. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. It's attested to in some Jewish traditions. We don't know. But here's the difference between Jesus and the high priest. You see, the high priest in Jewish times went into the Holy Holies, did that work and came out and went back in and came out and went back in. I could keep on going because that's how he had to do it. But Jesus, by contrast, has entered the heavens, the great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus' work is actually complete. And the author of Hebrews has made this point earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, Jesus is God. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus' work is finished. Unlike the high priest in Jewish times that had to keep going in and doing it year after year, we have a high priest whose work is done. It's complete. It was enough. It was accepted by God. If we jump to verse 15, we're told we have a high priest who is able to empathise with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way just as we are. Now, that's an interesting statement. And I've had people ask me this question. Is that true? Is that really true? After all, I kind of got my doubts that Jesus was ever tempted to smoke pot, for instance. And we can be pretty confident that Jesus was never tempted to speed down Melrose Drive. Has Jesus really been tempted in every way like we have? Well, the answer is yes. Because those are just expressions of temptations, and they're culturally appropriate. But temptation's actually much deeper than that. And Jesus was tested by Satan. He was tempted. He, 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 was tempted, he was tempted in a way that appealed to his pride, tempted in a way that appealed to his vanity, tempted in a way that said, you can do this an easier way. And those are the roots of most temptations. Temptation, which is very much as the temptation that we face. And if you think, and I've been asked this question too, if it was only that one occasion that Jesus was tempted, there's a scripture that would actually take that to task too. Because Satan did come and tempt Jesus, test Jesus three times on that occasion after his baptism in the wilderness. And then the scripture tells us, you'll find this in Luke chapter 4 verse 13, uh, just a little verse but a very important verse, that uh, the devil left him until an opportune time. So those times in the wilderness were not the only times that Jesus was tested and tempted uh, he was tested right through his life and ministry. But, and we know this from the scripture, though he was tested, he did not sin. He was without sin, verse 15. And so you can hear the enthusiasm in the author's voice. You can almost hear it being preached. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us hold firmly. Take it in both hands. Grasp it strongly. Verse 14. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. There's a great word. We can come to God with confidence. This week, <laughs> I'm be careful about this story. 
Um, this week I had a bit of an issue uh, with the bank. I had to move some money and the next day when I checked the statement, my money too by the way, not your money because I don't touch church money. Uh, when I checked the statement there was a fee that they'd charged which nearly gave me a heart attack. And so I thought the only way that I'm going to be able to resolve this is actually go to the bank in person. And so one day through the week, my apologies to you Lou because you, you were waiting for me, uh, went into the bank and, uh, and I asked the person at the desk if I could talk to someone about this issue. Now I don't know how you go, let's just say you had, um, uh, you were looking for parts for your lawnmower or you were looking to get something done by someone, you were looking for help from a professional, whether it be uh, medical or uh, financial or whatever, you kind of, if you're like me, you kind of size the person up and think, well, I wonder if this person's going to be able to address the issue for me. Does anyone else do that? So when I went into the bank, they said, yes, just take a seat there, please, Mr. Hodgins. Someone will be with you shortly. And I was just about to leave when this person, who I'm pretty sure finished school last year, um, that's a really ageist statement, um, came to me and said, David, can I help you? And I was thinking in my heart, probably not. <laughs> but... I have hastened to say, uh, we went and we sat down, I explained what the problem was, that person said, I will fix that, dealt with it, it hasn't quite been resolved, but I have every confidence that it will be. Uh, it was incredible. But we all do it, don't we? You go and uh, you're looking for a part. Uh, I'm sure I've done this, you know, looking for a part for something. They might look at your, your car, for instance, and they'll come out, you're looking for just a small part, and they say, now, uh, what kind of car was this again? Doesn't fill you with a lot of confidence, does it? Where was the engine? <laughs> Different if you run into someone who says, ah, oh, yes, I know exactly what the problem is, I know exactly what's going to happen here, and this is going to fix it. You have much confidence. Here's the point of that illustration. As we approach Christ, we come with confidence. He is the great high priest who, because of his sinlessness and because of the work that he has completed on the cross, is qualified to do what he says he will do. It's an absolute rock-solid guarantee. And so we go with confidence in our time of need. We will find grace and mercy in that place. If you jump with me to chapter 5, just a quick little aside here. The author takes a, a slight detour, talks about the other things that qualify Jesus as a great high priest. He talks about earthly priests. He talks about how they were called by God just as Jesus is. Um, and that's more significant than it might appear because the Jewish people knew that there were problems with earthly priests and the Jewish people also knew that priests had to be called by God but typically they would only come from the line of the Levites. Anyone from outside the line of the Levites could not be called a priest and so there's a problem because Jesus wasn't a Levite. Jesus was from the line of Judah. And so what we find in this passage is two quotes. You'll see them here in verse 5 and verse 6. Two quotes the author pulls from the Psalms. First one from Psalm chapter 2 
this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The second one from Psalm 110, I think it is, verse 4. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, every now and again, um, I have a little bit of fun in my role because there are some people in our community who have some very clear expectations what a priest, in our terms, should look like. So, for instance, uh, I should have one of those black shirts with a white collar, right? Or, at the very least, be wearing a suit and a tie. There was an elderly lady in our church in Warrnambool who used to come to most funerals because she pretty much knew everyone. And Yvonne would often say to me, I do like a man in a suit. <laughs> and I'll roll into some places and, uh, you know, in the community, whatever, for different roles. And, uh, and people are kind of looking for who's, who's the pastor, who's the one who's actually going to do the wedding or, the, or whatever it might be. And if I'm in just casual clothes, they say, oh, are, are you really the one? and kind of recognise uh, that uh, I'm not wearing the right clothes or whatever. And in Jesus' day, there were people who didn't recognise him either. In fact, even his disciples weren't sure on a couple of occasions. There was one occasion, a memorable occasion in Matthew chapter 3, where the disciples actually asked a question. The question was, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? But the author to the book of Hebrews wants to put this stamp of approval and authority that uh, was stated back there in Psalm 2 that we read earlier this morning, quoted uh, later on in the scripture in, in the Gospels at the time of Jesus' baptism when God stamped his authority on the Son. Today you are my Son. I, uh, sorry, you are my Son. Today I've become your Father. A declaration that is really significant in terms of giving Jesus the authority that he needs. The second quote there from Psalm 110 is also significant because, as I said, part of the problem that a Jew would have had was that Jesus is a high priest. How can he be? He's not from the right tribe. He's not from the right people group. Well, that's not a problem, the author says, because this messianic psalm, this psalm that points to the Messiah back here in Psalm 110, says of Jesus, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who can tell me anything about Melchizedek? He's a very obscure Old Testament character. In fact, you'll meet him very, very briefly in Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, sorry, not Hebrews. Well, you meet him in Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 to 20. Abram had had, had some trouble. Uh, some kings had got together. They'd fought. They'd taken Lot captive, Abram's nephew Lot. Abram went to rescue Lot. When he came back, having defeated them, he was met by Melchizedek, who was described in Genesis, mind you, as a priest of the Lord Most High. Where does he come from? Who knows? How did he become a priest? We have no idea, but we do know where he lived. He was a priest from Salem. Ever heard of that? Just add Jeru to the word and you've figured it out. He came from Jerusalem. He was a priest of the Lord Most High from Jerusalem. This is way back before David established that city, way back before Jerusalem became the centre of Hebrew worship. And just as a rather little uh, lovely aside, one of the things, and I'll say this uh, to encourage you, one of the things I love about the scripture is the way that God just weaves all of these things together through history 
you read this in Genesis and, and you'll skim over and you think, well, that was weird. But actually, it's part of God's salvation history. It's part of what God was doing way back then, which has its epicenter again on guess who? On Jesus Christ. Because the author of Hebrews says, though Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, and so doesn't qualify as being a priest uh, because he's a Levite, he comes from the tribe of Judah, he might well, and he does in fact qualify as a priest in the same way that Melchizedek was a great priest, a priest of the Lord Most High. You see this connection way back to Genesis. Isn't it amazing how God does that? Don't ignore the Old Testament and, and write it off as, goodness me, that's out of date, boring or irrelevant because it's absolutely not. Quickly, a couple of other observations. We see there in verse 7, Jesus was fully submissive, submissive to God and so his prayers were heard. Uh, and then verse 8, even though he was the son of God, his qualification to be our saviour was not based on that alone, but on the reality that he remained obedient, even in the face of great suffering and temptation, determined to fulfil the role that God had called him to. And through that obedience, the author tells us, he was made perfect. Not that he was ever sinful, but that his role was perfected. This is a bit of a warning. This section of Hebrews that we've started today talking about Jesus the High Priest runs for the next six chapters. And so we're going to be thinking about this topic for a little while yet. And it's possible, I guess, if we were honest, we might be tempted to say, couldn't we do something a bit more practical? I mean, what's the priesthood got to do with us? We don't, uh, we don't go through ritual. We, we're not familiar with priests. Couldn't we do something on marriage or the culture wars or uh, gender issues or relationships or something? Heaven knows we're facing all sorts of challenges. Can't we find something more relevant to preach on? But here's the truth and we need to grasp this truth. Until we gain an adequate sense of the overwhelming majesty of our holy God and simultaneously a true sense of our fallenness and our sinfulness, just as Isaiah did. You remember in Isaiah's court, you know, woe to me, I am a sinful man. Until we grasp that, we're not in a position to understand priests or their work, nor to appropriately comprehend what Jesus has done for us. So long as we treat Jesus as a good buddy who's there to help us with our problems, whatever they are in life, we're actually missing something really significant. And our failure on understanding the majesty of God and the depravity that we live with ourselves probably makes the idea of priesthood unfamiliar and, and irrelevant to us to some degree. One of the reasons the Old Testament is so indispensable to the New Testament is that it directs us to the sovereign majesty of God, that God's a fearful God, an awesome God, a powerful God, a holy God. And it confronts us time and time again with stories of men and women of God who failed just like we do. And one of the most important spiritual truths that we can learn together is this, that growth in the Christian life requires gaining a clearer understanding of who God is and who we are, which drives us to the cross. It should drive us in desperation to the cross, for where is our hope? 
What hope is there apart from that? That's why in Galatians chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 14, Paul glories in the cross. He doesn't glorify the cross, but he glories in what happens on the cross. Uh, Paul saw God as one who dwells in unapproachable light. As I said earlier, he described himself as the chief of sinners, but it was at the cross that he found mercy. It's in Jesus that he found redemption. And as we come to communion now, we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And so as we reflect on those words from the scripture, let me invite you now to join us together as, as a community as we celebrate this table of communion. For this is a deep and very personal reminder of what Jesus has done for us as individuals, what he's done for us as the body of Christ. I'm going to pray and then once we've prayed we'll ask Bob just to come up and play quietly for us. Our communion table is laid out before us here this morning. I'm going to invite you today to come down the centre aisle, partake in the bread and the cup, reminders of the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. Uh, for those of you who need to do the gluten-free, there's a couple of trays here uh, prepared for you as well. Once you've collected that, just make your way either to the right, if you're on the right, and then back up. It kind of works in my head, but it doesn't always work in practice. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the reminder that you, Lord Jesus, are our great high priest, the one who has entered heaven, who has sat down at the right hand of God, whose work is complete the one who's able to rest because you've done everything you had to do. And the invitation to us today, God, is that we might move to you, to draw near to you. And the promise in that verse from James chapter 4, verse 8, is as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so we pray today that you will draw us to yourself. Lord, our desire, our heart's desire, the longing of our heart is a deeper experience of you a more intimate experience of you. Lord, we want to see you at work. We want to see the evidence of your spirit at work in our church, in our lives, in our ministry. And so, God, again, we pray that you would forgive us for the apathy that we sometimes approach you with, for the laissez-faire attitude we go about with in our lives in relationship to you and our church. And we today open our hearts to what you want to do in us. And so, Holy Spirit, today... Fill us afresh, overwhelm us with your love, convict us of our sin, heal us from our brokenness, renew us by your strength. As we take these elements, Lord Jesus, we take you metaphorically, we take these elements as, as consuming you, filling ourselves with you. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.